from the moment Jesus stepped into Jerusalem to his arduous journey to be crucified and into his glorious resurrection. Come and listen in as Dr. Andy Brown shares the truly awesome significance of the holiest of weeks. This is Hearing is Believing. We look today at Palm Sunday and we look at this event that happened in the life of our Savior. And this is a tremendous time. As we approach the Passion Week, the the Holy Week, this is a tremendous time. And right now on Palm Sunday, this is just the setting of the stage. This is just the first act of so many great acts which are to come. And you know, there are certain events in life that if you think about it, it takes you an entire life to prepare for. I can remember, for example, people asking me here, Katie and I were fixing to get married, and they kept asking us, well, uh, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And how do you ever really get ready for such a marvelous adventure like marriage? Someone told me one time, said, well, if you wait till you get ready, then you'll never get married. Or they always say stuff like, if you wait till you have enough money, then you'll never do this, that, or the other. So there are certain events that takes your entire life to prepare for. I'll give you another one. I'm seeing these events as I'm experiencing these life events in my life. The same was true when Katie was pregnant with Adelie. This uh, beautiful blonde, radiantly pregnant. And people asked us, are you ready to have the baby? And my wife, of course, was ready, especially when eight months rolled around, nine months. All of you ladies that have had children, you can understand this. I can't understand this, but she can understand that. You can too. But what do you mean, are you ready to have the baby? Do we really have much of a choice? It just is what it is. It's too late now. To, it's, it's time to have the baby. Now, we did all kind of things to prepare I can remember the glorious, you know, that's your first child. You have this big bottle of Germex that you sit right there and you dare anybody to sneeze or anything like that. I can remember going out to Sherwin-Williams and buying that special kind of paint that doesn't emit this kind of toxin so that the baby's room, you know, this was, this was four months in advance, so the paint would have had plenty of time to dry, but we didn't want to take any chances, you know, all these things. I remember painting the nursery pink and, and green and making all these preparations, but all those preparations, and then all of a sudden I remember remember the day, and Katie can testify to this. She had Adelie in the early morning, and she had been in labor for some time, and, and they took Adelie out to do whatever they do, to prick the foot or whatever, and they did all of those things, and then Katie and I finally had an opportunity to rest. So she's in the hospital bed, she's sleeping, I'm in the little chair resting, and then all of a sudden, the nurse rolls in this carriage with this baby and says, the baby is hungry. And both of us look at each other and say, well, do something about it. What what are we supposed to do? How do you really prepare for such an event like that? Even you can do all these preparations, but you're still never really ready. And so today I want to talk to you about the God of salvation, preparing something grand for us. And today we're going to look at just him setting the stage, beginning to, to get all the elements in place of this, what we call the triumphal entry. In Mark 11, as we read it, we're going to see the Lord entering this city, this holy city called Jerusalem, and we're going to see Him accomplishing a salvation from this city that will reach the ends of the earth. But you have to understand something about this event that we're going to read about this morning, this event that we celebrate. This event is part of a bigger event 
that God is preparing the world for and had been preparing the world for since He spoke it into existence. So would you mind joining with me in Mark chapter 10? And we'll read the first 11 verses today. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at, the, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna! In the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here we have, as we begin this together, studying the Word of God together, here we have the stage of salvation being set, the table of salvation is being made. The dishes are being put out. The forks have been polished and they're being put into place. Jesus, at this moment, has reached the point of no return. He's going to enter this city. He's going to enter this city. And in entering this city, He's going to make some massive and major declarations. And in that point of no return, we have a message from Him. And the message from him first that he wants us to know just in these few elements that we see right off the bat is that first we understand that God has prepared a salvation for us. Think about that just for a minute. There's so many clues in this text that serve to teach us what Jesus is doing. Remember, everything in Jesus' life from his birth to his living his life, feeding the 5,000, all of these things. He doesn't just go up and say, hey, you look hungry, let me feed you. No, he does all of those things to point, to teach. His entire life, his entire existence is a teaching tool to point to his identity, to point to who he is. And in this text, there are clues that I want to show you that teach us, teach us that God is preparing this salvation for us. Notice this first. Notice where we sit here. In chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, do you see that? Well, in Mark's gospel, I want you to underscore the word Jerusalem just for a moment. Because this tells us exactly where Jesus is going. This tells us exactly where His intended outcome will be. This city of cities, this city of David, this city that was uh, conquered by David, that has been the site of holy worship. Here He is going to Jerusalem. And throughout the gospel, if we had time today, throughout the gospel of Mark, we would see that the mention of Jerusalem has been peppered all through the gospel of Mark. And in most instances, in most instances, the mention is of people coming 
to hear Jesus from Jerusalem. But in this case, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Now, remember this. We sit in chapter 11 in the midst of a broader context. And the mention of Jerusalem is, is on purpose. Mark is telling a story. When the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write the Gospel of Mark, he did it purposefully. Mark is telling the story so that we will have a picture, a portrait of Jesus as the Messiah. So if we just look for just a moment in chapter 10 and verse 33, we see that Jesus is in the midst of uh, foretelling of His death. Verse 32, it says, And they were going on the road, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And then in verse 33, it says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him, spit on Him, flog Him, kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. So Jesus has already been preparing His disciples for what happened. And notice there's no indication of the disciples. They, they don't ever say, well, you're going to be killed, spit on, beaten. Let's not go there. Let's just go the other way. Do we have to go to Jerusalem at this time of the year? Everyone made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at this time of the year because this was the beginning of Passover. This was a momentous occasion, but Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. In other words, He is reaching the point, and this is the way that the entire Gospel of Mark is written, to let us know that He is reaching the point of no return. Once He enters those gates because of who He is, because of His man, because of His mission, because of His methods, there is no going back from this point. And so we continue with the chapter, the context as Mark is beginning to show us this salvation. As we begin to enter this Holy Week, look again at chapter 10 and verse 46 through 52 where the context is for us is even open further as we begin chapter 11. The last thing that we read before we hit chapter 11 is where Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he, they come to Jericho and as He was leaving Jericho, it says in verse 46, with His disciples and a great crowd. All of a sudden, this man by the name of Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, sitting by the roadside. In verse 47, it says, and when he heard, that's important, when he heard, because remember, this guy can't see. All he can do is hear. Can I get a witness this morning? We've never seen Jesus, but we've heard of Jesus. And here's Bartimaeus. He hears that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He begins to cry, and he begins to say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then in verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But then he just cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, in this great moment in the gospel, he stops and he says, call him. And they call the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, the master is calling for you. And this blind man threw off the coat that he was wearing. The Bible says in verse 50, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? I love that. Here this blind guy is. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus knew what he wanted, but he still asked. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has saved you, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And look at this, what happened? Bartimaeus followed him on the way. You and I know what the way is. Where is the way? Where is Jesus going? It's the same way that he calls you and I to, to follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung by Adolf Hitler during World War II in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor who was hung to death. And here's what he wrote. He said, the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. And after this blind man recovers his sight, you think the first thing that he would want to do was go and begin his career, finally give up begging and go pick up a trade. But what does he do? So overwhelmed, he goes and he follows Jesus on the way. And you and I know because of what Jesus has already told us in 1032 that his way is a way of suffering. His way is a way of death. His way is a way of life. His way is the way of salvation. You see, Jesus was on His way to accomplish salvation. You see, it's in this way that we understand Jesus' actions. They're being hung underneath a large backdrop of anticipation. Thousands of years worth of anticipation from the woman and the man in the garden who first heard the promise that God was going to make a way, that God was going to make a salvation. And then we have Mark through the events of Jesus' life, just painting the picture and telling us exactly what happened. This blind man, before Jesus comes into the city, before the king enters his city, he receives his sight. Here's the way Isaiah puts it. Listen to this. Isaiah 29 says this, And that day, which whenever the Bible says, whenever you read in the Bible, the prophets, whenever they say, in that day, there's always this anticipation of the coming day, the last days. And Jesus came in saying, those days are here. But listen to what it says. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain Fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Did you read that with me? The blind shall, the, the, the darkness of the eyes of the blind shall see. That's the way Mark is painting the picture. That's the way Jesus is walking. He's fulfilling prophecy. All of that. The actions of Jesus are screaming to be interpreted through the crowds, and even though the disciples and the crowds, they don't get it. The long-anticipated day of salvation is finally here. And it begins with a king who comes and enters his city. The long-anticipated day is coming. And where does it begin? It begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem. But we have further details in the text that teach us. Look at this next one here. When he drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, how many in here have ever been to Jerusalem? Anyone in here ever been to Jerusalem? All right, a few. Those of you who've been to Jerusalem, you know that you can't miss the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is ominous. You, matter of fact, if you stand on the Temple Mount, which is the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, you look up to see the top of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives sits over the city. Matter of fact, that's where most of the vantage points, if you think about it and you see the Dome of the Rock today, you're looking down. Most of those pictures are taken from top of the Mount of Olives. 
So why in the world does Mark let us know this uh, Mount of Olives and Bethany and Bethpage and all of this? And we're not exactly sure where, as a matter of fact, where Bethpage is. But so what is Mark's purpose here in telling us this? Is it just simply geography or is it something entirely different? And I think surely Mark wants us to let us know the historicity of where Jesus is walking, all of these things. But I think that he wants us to know. He mentions the Mount of Olives because the Mount of Olives in the Bible is very specific in prophecy. The Mount of Olives in Bible is very specific. And so what Mark wants us to do is he wants us to know right where we are in the plot of God's unfolding of history. Both Zechariah and Ezekiel mention the Mount of Olives. And in those two books, it is specific in their eschatological, that is their end times, last day overtones. For example, in Zechariah, we won't turn here today, but in Zechariah 14, the first nine verses, they have to do with the final judgment and the coming of the Messiah. And then in Ezekiel chapter 43, the first five verses, the Mount of Olives is mentioned again. And it's mentioned as uh, anticipating the coming of the Lord, the coming of His Messiah, the coming of His presence, and coming to fill the temple full of His glory. So I want to propose to you today that the key feature of the Mount of Olives, the reason that Mark mentions the Mount of Olives, is to let us know, it's to use, to let our anticipation grow. Because we understand that the Bible, Mark, is a part of this other corpus. Mark is a part of this grander work of God's revelation to man, beginning from the pages of Genesis. And so Mark is letting us know that there is this grand anticipation, this grand longing, this great expectation of the Messiah's coming. And it was upon the city. It's there. Like the piercing rays of the sun as the dawn is shining All of a sudden, salvation has reached the city. The light of salvation has crisped through the terrain, through the Kidron Valley, and here it is shining on the gates of the holy city. But we continue through the narrative. We have Jerusalem, Bethpage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and then we have this long discourse of this procurement of this donkey. You would think in the way that it's mentioned, you would think that we would have this long story about the, the children coming up and trying to pet the donkey as they're riding through the streets or the children waving the palm branches or everyone doing all these things. But if you look at the way the text is written, if you look at the way Mark is telling his story, what's being emphasized here? We get just a little bit. They brought the cult to Jesus. Verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road. They left the leafy branches Those who went out, they began shouting, Hosanna is he, and all these things. But look at this. Look at this here. Verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 have to do with what happened on that day on Palm Sunday. But look at this. Verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 have to do with the procurement of this donkey. Why in the world does Mark spend so much time telling us about how these two disciples got this donkey? The reason I believe, beloved, is because God is telling us through His Word that the long-anticipated day of salvation is here. 
The longing of the hearts of the people in darkness. The Bible says soon they will see this marvelous light. This day is soon here. Remember this, okay, as we go forward. Every word of God is inspired. Every word. The Bible, the Holy Spirit, inspired Mark to choose the words that he chose purposefully. We call that verbal plenary inspiration. We believe that the exact words, where the words fit, everything is inspired. And so Mark is the shortest of all four of the Gospels. And if he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thinks it necessary to spend so much time in one place, then our obligation as students of the Word is to listen and to seek what it is that God is trying to teach us from here. And here's what I think Mark is teaching us from here. This cult tethered to something shows up in another place in the Bible. It shows up in one of the most significant passages in all the Scripture, Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons, Jacob is fixing to die. And remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And how many sons did Israel have? Twelve. Very good. So he's going out and he's blessing all of his sons. He goes in order. He goes from Reuben and then he goes down and he gets to Judah. And the way that you would think everything would be, if you read Genesis 49, you would think that the, the way the Bible always paints, and as far as the culture is concerned, is Reuben, the oldest, he was supposed to get all the inheritance, all everything. But that's not what happened. He comes down to Judah. And that's where Jacob homes in. Listen to what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 49. And see if you can hear anything about a donkey, anything about something being tied up. Listen to Genesis 49. This is fun. The Bible says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Have you ever heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah? Where would you get that from? Genesis 49. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Then look at this. This next phrase, it takes us by complete surprise. Because so far in Genesis 49, there's been no king in Israel. But listen to this next phrase. The scepter. Scepter? What does a king have that he rules with? He has a scepter that he rules with. That is the representation of his ruling power. So all of a sudden, the Bible opens up and it says, the scepter. There's an anticipation beginning in Genesis for the coming king, for Israel, for the world to be under one king. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal, or his donkey, to the vine, and his donkey's colt, to the choice vine. 
He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. In other words, what I want to tell you is that even this event goes to show us that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy that pointed to him all the way back in the beginning pages of Genesis chapter 49. Look at the way that the text is. He says in verse 2, you're going to find a colt tied. And then he says, untie it, bring it in. And sure enough, what happens in verse 4? They went away, they find this colt, and what's happened to the colt? This colt is tethered, he's tied. In other words, what the Bible wants us to see is this, finally, this long-anticipated king, this one who is from the tribe of Judah, who will rule the world with a rod of iron. He is here. That day has been inaugurated. That day is coming. And it gets even more specific because even the type of donkey points to his identity. Look at what the Bible says. He said, you will find a young donkey tied on which no one has ever sat. If we had time today, I would show you in Samuel and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy that this type of donkey is specific. The beast In other words, this beast had never been ridden. It has not experienced the burden of work yet. It's not, and therefore was able to be set apart. It was able to be made holy for the Lord's use of it, for his specific use of it. So even the donkey points to this. Every action, every action in this narrative, everything is specific. And every action the Lord Christ takes is in accordance with the expectation and with the longing of the people of God through the ages. And in this one act, when He goes and He sits on this donkey and He rides through this city and people are saying, God save us, the Lord save, is an exact fulfillment of another prophecy. Again, we go to Zechariah chapter 9. And Zechariah is a book that is quoted often by the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation And you know what the book is about? The entire book in one word is the salvation of the Lord. Listen to what happens in Zechariah. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king, the long-anticipated king from Judah who will have a scepter in his hand. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And then it says, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And I just want to ask you this morning, how in the world can you read Mark chapter 11, and then read Zechariah, or read Zechariah, and then read Mark, and then read them side by side, and not understand that exactly what Jesus is doing is purposefully expressing who He is. He wants us to see it. He wants us to get it. So just imagine this for just a moment. As we step back and we look at this and we think, okay, okay, God's prepared a salvation for us. Think about what that means. For you this morning. Think about what it means for me. It means that God has prepared a salvation for you. And all through your life, 
He has been wooing you to Himself. He has been pursuing you relentlessly like a lover through circumstances in your life. God has been relentlessly pursuing you. He has prepared a salvation for you. He knew the mess. He knew the heartache. He knew the hurt. He knew the sin. He knew the shamefulness. But yet, He still, still, while knowing all those things, He still chose to make a way for you through His Son. You see, this one is this Jesus who can then, after He rides this donkey, is going to be soon strung up to a cross crucified for your sins, crucified for mine, both past, present, and future. And this one is able to go to the cross so that then he can say, I have taken your burden. I have taken it away to give you rest. And all you simply have to do is come to me and I'll give you rest. This morning, as we look at the wonderful expression of salvation, you have to ask yourself a question. Honestly, just before you and before God, have you come to Him? Realizing that before the foundation of the world, He knew you. Knowing that before the foundation of the world, He pursued you relentlessly. Have you, and right now, He is still pursuing you. Have you come to the realization that He loves you and He'll never let you go? Have you surrendered your life to Him? Have you embraced this wonderful truth that this preacher is telling you about this morning? This wonderful truth that the Word of God is telling you about this morning. That this God of the universe knew your days before there was even one of them. And loved you anyway. And expressed that love through preparing a glorious salvation for you. And just if you read this passage, you look and you read verse 7 and 8 and you see them spreading these wonderful cloaks on the back of this donkey and you see them taking their cloaks and laying them on the streets and then taking these palm branches that they had to secure from somewhere else and bring them into the city and lay them down. You have all of these instances and you think, wow, they get it. They get it. But they respond with jubilation, but I want to tell you that the way the text reads is that they didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't get it. See, they respond with a quote from the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And this set of Psalms was used liturgically. What does that mean? It means that it was in every worship service, something was used from Psalm 113 to 118. It was used liturgically to express this longing, to express this anticipation, to express this expectancy of the Lord coming to save. But the fact of the matter is that this salvation is entirely unexpected. Look at what happens in verse 8 through 10. The crowds were crying for salvation, but they're gone. As soon as verse 10 happens, that's the end of the crowds that we see. In verse 11, all of a sudden he's entering Jerusalem and went to the temple. If this crowd was like it must have been, then surely here the, the king is this anticipated king. I'm telling you, the crowds didn't get it. 
Read this Zechariah again and let me show you the reason that they didn't get it. Zechariah says that they were supposed to have this king coming and he will be cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle shall be peaceful comes. In other words, this crowd, they were expecting this king to come riding in on this donkey to be a conquering king, to end the oppression of the Roman occupation. Not from the chain that tethered them tightest. Not from sin's domain. They missed the implications of this event. As so many people do. They were so concerned with their temporary discomforts, with their temporary uh, lack of contentment, that they neglected eternity. The crowds wanted a conquering king like David, not understanding that of all the enemies that David defeated, he could not defeat one, death. David was a conquering king. He was a war king, but he was succumbed to the greatest threat that humanity faces, the greatest threat that you and I face is death. And I know everyone in here cares about their life. That's why you took that pill this morning. That's why you plan on, if you have a hurt or a pain, you go to the doctor. Because God has given us this great desire to live. And the Messiah comes humbly in order to take our sin, to take our sorrows, and to make them His very own, to undergo the penalty that was reserved for you and I, and then to go and to die, to face that penalty fully, and to be laid in a tomb, and to have His sacrifice accepted three days later when the God of the universe raised the God of the universe from the dead. Remember this this morning, that the message of the Gospel The message of hope that we proclaim as believers is eternal hope. Sure, we have hope now. But the hope that Christ offers us is a hope that is in this life as well as transcends this life. This is a salvation, our hope, all because we realize that the Savior came into a world that was dead already. He was the only one living, walking. He came into a world that was dead already in order to bring the breath of life back into His creation. Think about that radical message this morning. Just think with me just for a moment. In order to inherit eternal life, there is nothing that you can do. Eternal life, salvation, is all based upon a work that the God of salvation accomplishes on our behalf for us. Now listen to me carefully. We call it salvation. Accepting Jesus does not mean that your life will get better. Listen closely. In some cases, accepting Jesus means that your life will get worse as far as the earthly standards are concerned. Because it may mean that once you accept Jesus as your Savior, it may mean that you have to give up certain things that you were profiting from before. It may mean that you have to undergo persecution. 
But the message of the gospel is that once you accept Jesus, you will be transformed from death to life. From not pleasing God to pleasing Him entirely. All of this, all of this, because God took on flesh and then subjected His body to death on a cross, and then raised it up from the dead, so that all of those who trust in Him would have life eternal. Totally unexpected was this salvation that God came, but it was inexpressively glorious. And so this morning, my challenge to you is don't be like the crowds. Don't miss salvation. Look at what happened in verse 11. He entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. He looked around, saw everything. It was already late, so he went out back to Bethany with the twelve. The crowd was gone as soon as they gathered. I think that it is one of the most anticlimactic events in Jesus' life. All the pomp, all the circumstance over and the crowd disperses all this anticipation all this preparation to be met by a crowd that was calloused hardened seeking their own intentions above glorifying God and as I stand here and I reflect on the word of God I'm afraid I'm afraid that there may be some here that they treat our Lord in that way. All excited in moments of great jubilation and then all of a sudden it just fizzles out. That prayer meeting. Oh, that worship gathering. The pomp, the circumstance. And then you just simply move on. Just simply going through the motions. This is a characteristic of what some have called cultural Christianity. Loving the Lord on Sunday, but forgetting about Him the rest of the week. Not letting the message of the cross impact every part of your life. As if you and I could compartmentalize God and put Him in a little box. As if. We could even do that. You know, in the West, especially in America, we spend millions, millions on Bible conferences, books, concerts. But when we leave, oftentimes the message is left in the room where we came from. Why is that? How can we hear this message and there not be aftershocks? in our life? How can we not walk away from the Word of God after we've heard that God loves us and has a plan for us and that He desires for us to follow Him? How can we not leave with wounds on us, realizing that there may be a portion or a big part of your life that you need to repent from, turn totally from it, to turn totally to this God who's ready to save you, who loves you? How can we just simply leave that message and not let it touch every part of our lives the reason is and God knows this he says my people love me with their lips but their hearts are far from me 
Look at what happens in verse 11. He goes into the temple, anticipating us for what happens next. When he looked around at everything as it was already late, what happens? He went out to Bethany with the twelve. The king leaves the city without his people except for twelve. Here's the way Jesus said it. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Now listen to what he says next. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This morning, I just want to simply ask you, the stage for salvation has been set according to Mark's gospel. But you can flip ahead if you want to, and you can go ahead and read what happens. Jesus died on the cross. Salvation has already been secured for you. Don't leave here today. Don't live your life without having the cross of Jesus Christ have an impact mark on every aspect of everything that you do. Don't miss the salvation that God has already gone to heaven and earth to reveal to you, to prepare for you. Friend, all you have to do is simply come to Him. He's done it all. Trust Him. And the Bible says all who come to Him in John, all who receive Him as Lord, He'll give you the right to be called one of His own. You see, Jesus left here. He went out, left the crowds. There was only a few that followed Him out of the city. You may be here, and you may be willing to follow Him into the city. All the pomp and circumstance, but are you willing to go with Him wherever He leads, wherever He goes? Father in heaven, we love You, and we thank You for this time. Help us, Lord God, to mark our days, mark our days by the passion of Christ to realize that He has lived for us. He has died for us. He, Lord God, lives again for us so that by His life we now can live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.